Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. Welcome to another episode of Concerts That Made Us. I'm your host Brian and before we get into it, I hope you all had a great Christmas and have some serious plans to party at New Year's. Now my guest this week is Robbie Kowal, former DJ and CEO of Hush Concerts. If you've ever wondered what it's like to work in events and promotions, I guarantee this episode is for you. There's so much valuable information you can learn from this one. I know you're going to enjoy it. So, Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, Robbie, you're very welcome to Concerts That Made Us. I am uh, honored to be here. I've I've been listening to uh, your podcast for some time and have learned a lot from the folks uh, that you've had on and from you as well. So thank you for having me. Thanks a million. That that really means a lot. I I appreciate when I get feedback like that. So... uh, We'll get straight into it. You're the CEO of Hush Concerts and a former DJ. Now, before we get into Hush Concerts, you studied history in college and then worked as a health inspector. How did you actually get into the music industry? Uh, it's, a, it's a crazy story, but um, yeah, I like, um, like a lot of people out of college, I took the first job I could get that seemed decent. And I was working for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Department of Public Health. But the idea, I had this dream that I really wanted to be a writer. That's why I studied history. And uh, I had this idea I was going to write a novel. So um, I saved up a bunch of money. I was working nights and days in Boston, saved up some money and moved to Greece, uh, specifically to a place called Santorini, um, which is uh, this volcanic island, paradise, whatever place. And I had this idea I was going to write a book about the last days of, of of Atlantis. And I was going to live there and write the book because that's one of the places that they surmised that's what Homer was talking about. And um, I ended up when I got there, um, I needed a bar job to to pay the bills. And the guy who ran this one club, uh, he he liked me. We shared a taste in music. And um, when his DJ went to get married, he had me fill in for him. And then he liked what I played so much more than that guy. And he also figured he could pay me half as much because I was illegal. <laughs> I was working illegal. And, right. uh, and um, so I started DJing there uh, five hours a night for um, 120 out of 121 nights in a row for Jeez. four or five months. Yeah, you don't get any nights off in the summer season. So um, I learned real fast how to, what to do, even though I had no clue. Yeah, I was just going to ask, did you have any background or any experience in DJing at that point? No, I'd never DJed before and there was no one to teach me. Um, I was using a tape deck, uh, a a record player and uh, a couple commercial CD players. I had to learn to time it. So you press a button and then exactly this long before the track drops. So 
it, it was intensely difficult, but um, what it did give me, which is um, something that you hear musicians talk about a lot, uh, which almost no DJs do, it gave me an opportunity to woodshed, right? I, I was stuck in this place five hours a night and everything that I had to know about how to program music um, from the uh, you know soft beginning of the night to a crazy end of the night, playing five hours the entire night of the club, I learned everything. And also I had a very limited amount of music to play with. So I had to use everything at my disposal to not repeat and get through the entire night. And um, it taught me how to program, how to plan, how to sequence songs in my head and, and come up with what I was doing. And it also freed me from the restrictions that most DJs have, which is I'm going to be a hip hop DJ. I'm going to be a house DJ. I'm going to play that. I'm going to play that. In the very beginning, all bets were off because it's what I needed to do to get through the night. Mm. And that has, that has influenced everything that's come after. Um, because when I came back to the States, um, I, I had no context for how other people DJ. So I was my own person. Yeah. Yeah. That must've been very interesting. Was there, were you able to jump straight in when you got back to the States or did you have to kind of change the way you DJ or learn some more to fit in, so to speak? Yeah, I had no clue how people actually DJ. I, <laughs> I only knew what I knew from there. And when I got back to the States, I, had, I, I was still working to be a writer. That was still the, the plan. And I was doing um, stringing and PR work and writing for websites and all kinds of stuff. But along the way, I was also trying to get my hands on equipment and learn from people as much as I could. It really didn't start getting real until I, I played a wedding uh, that some, a couple club owners saw me. It was the wedding for some deadheads. And uh, I played a bunch of Grateful Dead music for them, which is what they wanted. And the owners were like, hey, we want you to come play for us in San Francisco and had this little bar called Nikki's. And I said, well, okay, but I don't want to, you know, you already have a dead night there. I'm going to do funk and soul, if that's okay with you. And so I played at Nikki's every Thursday for a couple of years and I still didn't know what I was doing. I mean, Nikki's had good equipment, but you know, you're talking about the lower height of San Francisco, three of the best record shops in the world were down there, Rookies and Groove Merchant and um, uh, Tweakin. So every Tuesday I'd go down there, I'd go to the record shops, I'd talk to the guys, see what they liked, see what they had. I would dig, I'd go up to Amoeba if I couldn't find things, I was buying CDs and records. And I went on like that uh, for four or five years of playing at Nikki's. Plus I'd bring in these ringers to play with me. Um, I'd have a special guest every couple of weeks and they were basically there, you know, I was basically paying them to show me how to be a DJ. <laughs> I was fortunate enough, San Francisco at that time, the late 90s, was full of these immensely talented selectors and producers and DJs. And I, I gleaned every last bit of knowledge I could from them. And some of them were very harsh senses, too, um, which was kind of fun, too. But yeah, again, that was another chance to woodshed and, and learn how to how to be how to how to do it professionally. Yeah, I always find it interesting Going through life, you often hear these stories of a chance happening that totally changed someone's direction in life. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Like, imagine if you hadn't went to Greece or if the guy hadn't been getting married and you hadn't been, you know, thrown in the deep end to cover him. You, you might not 
have the the business you do now you could be you could be a writer you could be working in any other field I suppose it's you're lucky the way things worked out at what point did you decide I want to I, music is what I want to do and give up on the writing uh very very good question you know to, to your previous point I just want to just want to respond that um I'm a very rational very factual science-based person but I've mm-hmm. often felt like I've had some sort of guardian angel like I was meant to be here because there were there were several instances like what you're talking about which things would have turned out completely differently mm-hmm. um and um I think when the, the moment I made the decision to do this instead of that was um was when i was uh i was i took a job my writing work got me into the game industry for a minute and i was going to be hired by ea to work with them to write uh they were working on this military um naval combat game and i was very excited about because it was part of my interest in history things i had studied that's why they hired me i was going to help them write the backstory for it and in the meantime, they said, well, what, you know, the game doesn't start for a couple of weeks. Why don't you do some testing for us? And I was testing Madden, of all things, the, the football game, which I love. But testing is a brutal. It's terrible. You're stuck to a desk because they make it really not fun. Um, you're trying to break the game. So you're not really playing. Uh, it's not fun. Right. And a night came up where one of my stringing jobs w- would have had me going to uh, see Parliament Funkadelic. And, uh, and, and interviewing George Clinton, or I had to work late at EA and I said, Hey, listen, I have this opportunity to interview Dr. Funkenstein and get, you know, and put it in print. And they're like, sorry, we need you to stay. And and that's like, just immediately I was like, I quit. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I'm not going to follow this, this I'm going where the music is. I'm going, I mean, listen, it's P-Funk. You've got to, you've, when, when the doctor calls, you have to accept the charges. <laughs> exactly. I don't think anyone would blame you for uh, making that decision anyway. <laughs> it was a fabulous interview too, and and really inspiring and hilarious. Really? Is there anywhere people can find it nowadays? No, it was on, it was printed on a website called City Search, which uh, I don't think any of that stuff is archived. I have printouts of all the interviews. I did some sports stuff, some music stuff with them, and it was super fun. But yeah, it's all gone. But at, at that point, it was, it was basically, it's, it's, I'm still writing on the side, but music is, is the real, uh, is the real pursuit. Yeah, yeah. At what point did it come that you realized that was going to be the main pursuit? That was there a big gig that you landed that you're like, holy crap, yes, this has taken off? You know, there were a few, but I think at that time I was kind of very, very naive. I was a leaf in the wind. I had no idea what the industry was. I had no idea how to be a professional musician. I had all of the musical instinct you could want, but none of the musical intelligence. I couldn't produce. Um, I didn't even know what an agent was or anything like that. And but the Nikki's thing was really popular. And I started because I was a writer, I was writing this newsletter that I'd put on the bar to tell people what we were doing that night, started emailing it out. All of a sudden I had thousands of email followers. We didn't call them followers then at lit, reading my funk newsletter. And it came to the attention of some folks I had gone to college with uh, in New Orleans who, uh, who started a festival called Bonnaroo. And they said, hey, we want you to come out and DJ in our video arcade. And oh, I, 
Sure, I'll go to 10. <laughs> I don't know what that is. You know, you think about what these festivals are, how, how massive they are. The fact that I was being asked to do this at 25 and with very little cred of any kind, I was just a bar DJ. Mm. Um, I, I can't even imagine how big a deal that was when you consider that anybody who plays on those festival lineups today, it has to go through layers of agents and managers and stuff. And they were just like, hey, come out. We'll put you on the arcade. I was like, okay, I'll be there. And that really changed my whole life because once you play Bonnaroo, once you're part of that, you meet people and you're part of this incredible um, infrastructure there where, you know, I'm surrounded by all these legitimate musicians and artists. I started realizing, oh, this is what it is. This is what I want. This is what I want to pursue. I can, I want this to be how I make a living. And, um, and obviously also Bonnaroo, now I've played, I've played every major music festival in the United States, except Coachella, I've never played Coachella, but I played all of them like a fly on the wall, never like, you know, somebody on the, you know, on the high up, but I've always been like doing interesting things in the corners, in the back, back rooms and whatnot, but I've been to all of them. There's nothing like Bonnaroo, like how, how the artists are treated there and how the fans treat the artist is like nothing I've ever seen because it's a really hard place to get to. It's really hot and steamy and, and sweaty and swampy during the summer. And so if you want to be there, it's because you really love music and yeah. I've never had better energy in the audience than, than I have at Bonnaroo. And I, I'm fortunate enough to play there 10 times. So that was an incredible place. And that's also where I, where I met silent disco, which came into my life there as well. Also because of the Superfly folks, um, the geniuses at Bonnaroo. Yeah, that's a, a perfect segue, by the way. For some of the listeners that might not have heard of it before, what exactly is Silent Disco? Sure. Um, so the best way to think of it is everything that goes on on stage uh, of any kind goes into a mixing board, and then it goes out to speakers, right, through a right and right. left channel. And a Silent Disco, instead of it going to the speakers, goes to a little transmitter, and the transmitter goes out and people wear wireless headphones to listen. Um, and uh, so that you can have a, uh, any kind of concert with as many people as you want, but no loudspeakers. And so right. that creates, uh, creates opportunities for all kinds of creativity and solves a lot of problems for people who are having issues with the noise, e- either, you know, in, in any kind of setting. So that's the basics of it. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like heaven for some old age pensioners almost. Yeah. You know? <laughs> there's there's a lot of old age homes that are using it these days. Yeah, I could imagine. I could imagine. What's the history of it? Where did it get started? So opinions differ, and there's there's a few folks in Europe who who would like to who who argue over who it was, but my understanding of it was there's a guy named Cisco and he came up with the concept and then there's a couple Dutch guys who he says took it from him, but I don't know, maybe it was his idea and they started a company to do it. But anyway, the best people known for it is these folks called Silent Disco. They're based in Holland and they're widely credited with the people who started it. And they brought it to Lowlands Festival. Lowlands is where uh, Rick Farman from Superfly and Bonnaroo saw it. And then he said, let's bring it to Bonnaroo. And And it should be noted that it was a different era in festivals in the concert industry also in that Rick didn't have to go through like layers of corporate questioning and whatnot. He was just like, this is cool. It's my festival. I'm bringing it over. And he did. 
and they got who they wanted to play it. And they asked me and, and because I was already in their, I was their kind of, I don't know, pet DJ. I was their, I was their guy who played wherever they needed someone. I was the guy cause they knew I could play whatever. And also Bonnaroo is a rock festival. You don't want to go get some hip hop DJs to play there cause they'll play hip hop. I was yeah. looking at the Bonnaroo lineup and playing all the music of those artists and people loved it. So that that helped but uh, long story short they asked me to do the silent disco and i tried it and it was interesting it was it blew my mind like it, it the headphones were terrible the transmission wasn't great there wasn't enough volume i had to argue with them over they had to convince me not to use monitors because they wanted it properly silent and um but after i did it i i realized how enormously powerful a platform it could be for Festival promoters are dealing with noise complaints, people who want to do backyard barbecues, corporate events where you want to have more than one meeting in the same room, all those sort of things immediately came to mind and bing, 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 let's, let's do this. Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a very interesting concept when you put it like that. doesn't seem like there's any, uh, you wouldn't be held back in any way, there, the, the, there's no limitations, you know? Did you... Uh, immediately jump on the idea and run with it then? Well, so at the time, you have to remember there, there wasn't a lot of this equipment available anywhere. So it took a few years before we were able to get our hands on some. But as soon as we did, um, I was fortunate enough that my DJ world, my DJ career was going very well at that time. I had a very good agent and, um, and also I was promoting concerts myself. I had Sunset Promotions with John Miles was, you know, we, we'd started the SF Funk Festival. We were working North Beach Jazz. We were doing 30, 40 shows a year also in San Francisco, club shows and whatnot. So I had some resources. And so plugging Silent Disco into it was an add-on. It wasn't ever going to be the only thing. Um, the first one we did in San Francisco was on Ocean Beach. We always wanted it. That was where we immediately thought would be beautiful. And uh, because we were concerned that too many people were come, would come, we didn't put the headliner on the, on the poster. It just said right. guest. And sure enough, 800 people showed up anyway because they were very curious. And it turned out it was Tipper, who's oh, man. one of the great producers of all time, one of the great performers of all time. And we had Tipper on Ocean Beach. That was the first silent disco in San Francisco. And then we also, I had been fortunate enough to have this amazing agent named Boca Phil Egenthal, who's still out there. He's one of the greatest. He's just like, you look up agent addiction or you see this guy and he booked a 15 city tour for us um, to go around the country doing silent discos. And I guarantee you seven of the people that he spoke with were like, what's that? I don't know. <laughs> well, do you have an open date? You're going to take this. You're doing it. If you want this other band, you're going to do it. He, he threw his weight around. He did whatever he had to do. God bless Phil Egenthal's soul. He got us a tour and all of a sudden we had, you know, 15 cities in the U.S. And, you know, then we started developing it into all kinds of other things over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. It's, um, uh, is it big? Is it still as big nowadays? Because I think a couple of years ago in Ireland, a company tried to do a few of them, but it never really took off massively. You know, I it's probably five, six years now since I've even heard the term silent disco in Ireland. What's it like in America now? So, well, first off, um, Europe is bigger than the States in general. 
Um, our, we have a partner in the UK called Silent Disco King. We work with them on corporate and uh, conference events. And they're so inspiring and amazing company to work with. And they do the biggest ones in the world. They've done up to 30,000. They do 20,000 at Reading and Leeds every year. Um, the biggest we've done over here is only 10,000 at, at Kaboo Festival 2019. Um, but it is big and it is growing. And to your point about hearing about it in Ireland and then going away, one thing you have to remember is all it is is just a set of speakers. It's a different way of experiencing music. It's fun. It's interesting in and of itself, but you still need all the other things that make a, a fun event or concert or party. You need good music. You need good marketing. You need good promotion. You need good production. You need people who are going to get people in the door fast. And what happens invariably, because it's a new thing, is people will get their hands on a set of headphones and like, I want to be a silent disco company. <laughs> good for you. Go right ahead. And they don't know, they haven't spent 10, 15 years promoting shows like we had. They hadn't worked through customer service, marketing, booking, talent buying, and all of the different things that make it well that have nothing to do with the headphones. The headphones themselves also have some very unique production capabilities and challenges that right. are strictly limited to them that take you a, a, a good amount of time to learn um, how to solve as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, are you able to, could you say, I had this idea when I was looking at your company of like, say, a nightclub, and I specifically thought of a nightclub in my, home, my hometown. There's like four different floors, and I thought to myself, if they had like a, a silent disco night and each floor played a different style of music, like you, you have your hip hop on the first, then rock, then pop, stuff like mm -hmm. that. Can, is that possible? It is totally possible. And, you know, a better a better way to think of it is why not why not just do it all in one big room? Because we can do like, for instance, our new headphones are 12 channels. Um, you could do all those different types of music in one big room. The club situation, the reason it doesn't really get used too much in clubs, and this comes back to your Ireland situation where you're talking about cold weather, people want to be indoors. If you're in a club and you have amazing sound system speakers and subwoofers, why would you do it anyway? Silent Disco really shines outdoors. And mm. the beauty of Silent Disco, especially given the pandemic, was that it allowed people to move concerts outdoors and move fitness classes outdoors and move lectures and corporate meetings outdoors without having to get a sound permit. Um, but to your, to your point about doing multiple things in one area, that's, that's one of the great creative um, aspects of this platform in that, um, you know, we've done live jazz bands next to hip hop DJs, next to drum and bass DJs all on the same stage. And how you mix and curate a three channel or four or five channel event is enormously satisfying from a creative standpoint. It just takes the shackles off. Yeah, I could imagine. Jeez, it's almost a, I'd say it's a bit of a money saver as well, because you wouldn't need multiple stages as well. You could just put them all in the one space, play at the same time and, you know, go out to different frequencies. This is true, but then you also, you know, you think about like, let's take a festival stage to book five acts through the day. Um, in our case, uh, when we do our, our bigger festivals, 
we'll have, you know, 20, 25 artists rolling through because we'll have two or three going at a time. And you have to have, you know, you have to have more um, staff infrastructure to deal with them. Um, that being said, from a talent standpoint, it's not about getting the biggest names in silent disco because the experience is so immersive. It's right in your headphones. It's right in your ear. So you, what you're more interested in is having interesting, um, creative, and uh, talented DJs who can who can go re- you can go really deep. So in the old days, so I, if, if I may, in, in the old days when we used to DJ, um, you you showed up with 200 records, and that's what you played. You played your records. Today, DJs are pulling everything off the internet. They're playing off YouTube. They're playing off whatever. And um, and in clubs, people don't really listen as much. You know, they spend more time on their phones. Even when you mm. go to a rock show, right? You have those people yeah. who are singing through the show. Those people are talking through the show. And then you have the people who are mad at those people. <laughs> and it's this whole thing. You put the headphones on, you go to a silent disco, 95% of the people are actively listening to one of those artists. And so that gives those artists the confidence and the freedom to really go deep and be interesting and play different things and play a lot of call and response with the crowd, get them to get them to shout, get them to sing, whatever. But it, it gives them enormous creative freedom where they don't have to worry about just playing the hits. And um, so that's one of the, the really nice aspects of this. Yeah, yeah. From a from an artist standpoint, it must be great because it's almost like you're making a one on one connection then because it's more personal because it's in the headphones. Yeah, that's what that's what I've experienced. And that's what I see. Um, People are actively listening. We also see that it it comes even more into uh, into that context in conference corporate meetings and conferences. You go to these big conferences and you know, a lot of the folks who are giving presentations, say at a TED talk or at a, I don't know, like a tech conference, sometimes it's like a software engineer. He's not used to being on stage. He's not, he or she is not used to um, being in front of, you know, a thousand people and talking about their software or whatnot. And so having them be in a room that's fully silent with people having headphones and being able to hear in their own headphones exactly how that sounds. So they're not like going back and forth with the microphone. They're not having to fight with the monitors. They're not having feedback. They hear exactly what everybody in the room is hearing and everybody in the room hears only them and no coughing or dropping or people walking out. And so it creates a a great deal of comfort for conference setting presenters. Now, obviously that goes even more so to the, the bands and the DJs that play for us. But with bands and DJs, there is a caveat to that which is that um, often there's more than one artist on stage. So for instance, I could be playing on blue and somebody else could be playing on green, someone else on red. Those are our typical colors. And you look out in the audience and God, this has happened to me hundreds of times where why is nobody listening to me? Why is right. only, oh, there's those four guys over there. Hey, I'm here for you guys. <laughs> I'm playing for you. I'm gonna, hey, you four guys in the back, how you doing? Yeah, right, this one's for you, right? And you have to fight through that, right? There's a psychological challenge of being on a stage with other people. Think of specifically DJs. It's the most megalomaniacal profession there is. Mm. Everything you control, look, even in bands, bands have to share. 
The bass player has to share with the drummer. They have to communicate on stage. They all get a piece of the pie when it comes to attention and adulation and all those things that, you know, one of the reasons why musicians play in, in bands, right? Mm. EJ is up there all by them lonesome, which is why you're seeing them become like so many of them become egomaniacs over time. Their heads explode. They're like the wide receiver in football where the whole game has to come to them all the time. Right. Yeah. You take those people with that psychology that are accustomed to having a stage or a booth to themselves and the whole club listening to them and you put them on stage with two other people and they have to learn how to share again. (laughs) They have to learn how to uh, think of the entire experience as the important thing. It's about them. It's not about me. I'm here to share. And what you, what we try to, uh, what we try to push with our DJs and express with them before they go on and talk to them. Even people have never played for us before. So, Hey, it's going to be a little different. Okay. It's going to be a little bit of a mind fuck for you because there's going to be other people and there are going to be times when no one's listening to you or you think no one's listening to you. Just Play the music you love, do what you love, and they will come back to it. I promise you, the more fun you're having, the more they will be attracted to it. But also don't forget that it's not about us up here. It's about everyone in in this place having a great experience. And nine out of 10 of them, once you lay it down for them like that, once you lay out the big picture, they just lose their their fear, right? Mm. There's still a little bit of fear mixing in headphones without monitors, but most of these folks, if they've DJed for any length of time, it's kind of like handing a guitarist a new guitar, right? It takes them, yeah. you know, it's just like, okay, I can do this, right? Yeah. Just, their muscle memory takes over. Sounds like it's almost uh, in the long run, improve them as a DJ because they're, uh, you know, they're going, there must be a bit of competition of, oh, I want to make sure I have more listeners than that guy over there or, you know, so they're going to up their game a bit and become better. Um, there is an aspect of, uh, of competition and, uh, but how it's expressed isn't necessarily people playing better. Where, where, what you're seeing sometimes is, for one thing, it forces DJs who don't have a lot of stage presence to, to try to pull themselves out of their shell. And I'm a great example of that. I'm definitely terrified even after 20 years of, of stage fright. And, but I have to go through breathing exercises and try to relax myself. And, and, and before I can get on stage, especially in a silent disco, because I know if I'm not having fun, no one else will be. And, um, and then the other thing you see where it manifests itself is in the type of music that DJs will play because, um, there's a lot of types of music that are very popular, especially in dance music, electronic music, but don't really work as well in a silent disco. You think of things like Minimal House or Dubstep, right, which are very mm-hmm. subwoof, sub, subwoofer-driven genres. It's all about this people being washed with bass frequencies in front of the subs. It's that's why they call it bass music, right? Mm, yeah. Well, in silent disco, long repetitive tracks with a lot of bass just end up just sounding boring. Even if the sound quality is excellent in our headphones, you can hear every last note. You're not feeling the subs through your shock. Yeah. So it forces DJs to kind of get out of their shell a little bit and play music with certainly with vocals, with instrumentation, with some call and response. Those sort of things tend to work better. It favors like the DJs that like myself, I play a lot of rock remixes 
and uh, metal remixes and funk remixes and stuff like that seems to work really, really well. Yeah, yeah. Hip-hop too, of course. Well, of course. You have to have the hip-hop in there as well. So um, when did you, when did that turn into Hush Concerts or when did you start Hush Concerts? So it took on, it came on organically. My partner, John, and I had sense of promotions. We were promoting funk and soul shows primarily in San Francisco and Latin music. And we had our funk festival and our jazz festival. But we were, we were, we were full service, mid-level concert promoters in a very challenging area. And we started doing more and more silent stuff. And then we started renting the gear out to other people. That became a much bigger part of our business. And by 2014, we realized that uh, a San Francisco, we had Silent Frisco was our San Francisco Silent Disco brand and Sunset SF was our concert promoter brand. And we realized that we needed to relaunch as a national company. So that's when we founded Hush Concerts. We, we got our hands on a lot more headphones and uh, we've been a national business ever since. We were already a national business and that we were doing festivals and whatnot became a national brand. Um, since then, uh, to where we were, we did 50 club shows in 2016. We we're down to as little as maybe like 10 in 2019. We still do some concerts, but some of our big festivals also have kind of fallen away. Ghost Ship Halloween was one of the biggest things we've ever done. Sea of Dreams, New Year's have all fallen away. So we we primarily think of it now as we are here to here to help others solve problems. Um, we still do some club shows. But our job is essentially when somebody tells you, no, you can't do that, we're here to show you how. And it might be headphones, but sometimes we're consulting people on, with, with people on how to speak to public officials. Sometimes we even tell them, hey, here's a place you could use a sound system and we have some guys to help you with that. Um, during the pandemic, it was about helping people um, uh, decipher FM technology so that they could do drive-ins. We had access to some really good FM gear and we helped a bunch of people do drive-ins, including a big series we put on ourselves where we had some huge artists, comedy, rock, um, uh, some big dance artists. We did a 13 show run at a, at a, uh, at a, uh, a driving range near San Francisco airport. And it was tremendous. You know, we had 500 cars a night for three weeks and, and it worked great. We had Burke Kreischer and Diplo and, all these other fantastic Dioro, all these fantastic artists. And, um, and we help people, you know, during that. So we're, one of the things about being a small company is uh, we're always looking for interesting ways to produce an event and also interesting ways to get back to our community. We, we have this motto that if you can't make a buck, make a difference. So we're looking to help people as much as possible. It's about service, right? Yeah. Yeah. On the, the drive-in concerts, actually, that's a very interesting idea because, as you know, with the pandemic, thousands of concerts got cancelled over here. We're actually, in Ireland, we're only starting to get concerts back. And throughout the pandemic, there was people throwing around ideas of how to have a concert. How can we have some sort of outdoor entertainment, you know? And I think they tried it once with everyone in a bubble or something like that. It didn't quite work. How did the how did the drive-in concerts go down? I imagine it's a weird experience, and you'd have people saying, "Sure, why wouldn't I just sit in the car and listen to the radio?" Yeah, it 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 was it is a stretch, and I think you know when Churchill said, um, "Democracy is the best form of government." While well, you've after you've tried all the others. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, drive-ins are the best form of concert if you can't do anything but drive-ins, right? So mm-hmm. yes, there's a lot of reasons why uh, live concerts are better. We all know that, but during this length of time in the United States, however long it was, we didn't have that opportunity anymore. And so some folks very dear to me, Hotbox started doing drive-ins. They did them all over the country. These guys are brilliant. Uh, I think one of the best talent buyers in the country is guy uh, Noah Dials. This guy, Matt Feldberg started doing these. And we were just, we just jumped in because we're very creative and um, uh, we have a lot of agency in the Bay Area about trying to make things happen. So we found them a venue and built them a venue out of nothing. And we had all the FM experience. Um, the challenge with drive-ins beyond, you know, how do you lay out the cars and how do you get enough cars in and out and how do you keep people separated? There, that's a big production challenge. But the real challenge is around the transmission. And Europe, the United States, every country has its own frequency regulations and, and outpower regulations for radio. Radio is a, you know, 120-year-old ball of yarn that's all tangled up and just deciphering what's legal and what's not. And around FM specifically, the kind of radios people have in their cars, um, it's enormously restrictive in the United States, how much FM output you can use, because they really only wanted radio stations that pay for those licenses to do FM. So in order to do FM in the States, you have to be under a certain power output um, within a certain range, et cetera, et cetera, which is why you really saw mostly big churches doing it, right? You mm. saw outdoor worship because who's going who's gonna to regulate or crack down on a church? When it came to concerts, we were all very, very concerned about the FCC, uh, Federal Communications Commission, um, and we had to find ways to even find gear that could get bigger range and then find ways to take legal gear and grid it out with repeaters throughout using our silent disco gear as a receiver, using multiple FM signals to grid out an entire area without going over the FCC limits. Mm. We had the wherewithal because we've been doing radio for 15 years and we have all this creative creativity and ideas of how to do equipment. We had a lot of ways to solve these problems, but for other people, it's really hard. I'm not sure what the regs are in Europe, but I guarantee you there's a way you just might have to dig a little. Yeah. Yeah. Probably where there's a will, there's a way you must be one of the, uh, the few companies then in the live entertainment industry that the pandemic didn't totally screw over. This is true. We were immensely fortunate um, in that we were, you know, when I said the outside thing is everything during the pandemic, um, solving problems for people is important because all of a sudden we now have this problem, right? Everybody has this problem, how to get together safely. And um, one of the ways that we were able to get through it was working with fitness companies because the fitness industry, you know, think of a gym or uh, especially like a yoga class or spin class or hit class um, is the most challenging environment you could think of from a COVID standpoint. Everybody's packed together. They're all breathing heavily. They're all sweating. I mean, I can't think of a, a, a less safe place to be in, you know, an unvaccinated uh, spin class. So yeah. we started working with uh, fitness companies to move their operations outdoors. Um, we did a ton of spin studios 
and we got them really good headphones that we can, we, we, through our partnership with the folks in the UK, we're able to do some things that other people can't around safety of frequencies and um, getting a clean channel in any environment, including in a place where like a spin class might be like in a big strip mall, right? Mm. Oh, hey, we want to just, let's put the bikes in the courtyard of the mall. Well, guess what? The courtyard of the mall is being washed with radio from all the stores around it. So you need a really good um, set of headphones, really good transmitters, and a company that knows how to do frequency analysis and coordination. And so we were able to do that for a lot of people, and it helped us get through it. The drive-ins were also a nice um, addition to it as well. Um, And more importantly, the drive-ins for us was about putting people back to work for for a month. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of out of work event professionals, these people who have enormous expertise and really were just starving on unemployment. And we were able to get some of them back to work for a month. Um, And that was really rewarding. Um, it, it, It wasn't perfect. Some things about it didn't work out, but that, that part of it, that was really the goal. That was why we did it because nobody would, put on a drive-in because they want to make a bunch of money unless they own the drive-in yeah yeah jeez and uh now that the restrictions and the pandemic are starting to ease and almost gone what is it looking like for hush concerts well the pandemic the pandemic restrictions are easing but the 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 concert industry i'm sure anybody you speak with will tell you this is still in a a very precarious place Hmm. Um, there's been enormous amount of disruption. Um, it's a lot of people have moved on to different careers and different professions. A lot of clubs closed, a lot of venues closed, and a lot of folks are looking for new ways to do things, which is exciting for us. But in general, for instance, last summer when, you know, and we're talking about the United States, right? The rest of the world doesn't have vaccines like we do here. And we don't even we don't even, uh, we take it for granted to a degree that half the country doesn't even want to take them. So that should tell you, you know, it's classic Americans, you know, we don't, we don't appreciate our democracy and we don't appreciate our security. Now we don't appreciate our, our medical industry either. Um, it, it makes me roll my eyes in, in shame when I, you know, I have, I have friends in Africa that can't get a vaccine. Yeah. They can't do anything. And here we have, we have more than we need and people are fighting over them. So we were opening up last summer and um, and then uh, the Delta hit and we had a bunch of stuff scheduled. We're doing corporate events and rentals and then everything shut down again. Oh, man. And after that second wave of shutdowns, it's made, I think, especially in the corporate world, very gun shy. Corporates and conferences, look, the concert industry, the festival industry is what people see that's what they think music is, right? But if you ask even touring musicians and people in the industry how they make a living, corporates make a much bigger um, impact on people's bottom line in every part of the event industry, bands, musicians, agents, the guys who move portalettes and you know the, the real unsung heroes, right? The guys yeah. who fencing, the staging, the roadies, the crew, corporates and conferences are a huge part, especially like union tech culture. All of the unions are held up, their their income, their livelihoods are held up by corporates and conferences. And 
whether or not or when those are going to come back is still anybody's guess. We're hearing good things that some of them are coming back, but they're also the most gun shy and the most beholden to underwriters and insurance companies and corporate execs who are very brand conscious and averse to risk. So that's anybody's guess. When it comes to promoters and people that want to go out, they'll take any risk they want. They, people want a party, right? Yeah, and they're tired yeah. of being cooped up, especially young people. So concerts are definitely coming back. Barbecues, you know, backyard events, all that kind of stuff. We are shipping headphones out by the hundred, by the thousand all the time. We're doing a ton of that work now has come back. But like many in the industry, we're, we're waiting with bated breath for the corporate world to feel like it's safe enough to start doing those sort of events. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later. You know, what, what, are, I was you seeing, what are you seeing in Ireland? Uh, there was actually a concert last night. It was one of the biggest ones that has been on. It was the offspring. Would you believe? Oh it was yeah. A, yeah it was a, exactly. Exactly. It was an indoor one in an arena, which was interesting, but uh, I wasn't at it personally, unfortunately. But from what I've seen, it was packed to the gills. Yeah. But uh, they're coming back. There's been a couple that have been cancelled in January. We have right. a weird restriction reintroduced last week on nightclubs and late night venues where they have to close at 12. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense whatsoever. <laughs> That's what everyone's saying. But there was a couple of smart ones. They, um, they said, okay, instead of opening from 10 until 2, we'll open from 6 until 12. So, you know, doesn't what make... What does that have to do with, with a virus? That's so strange. See, that's what everyone is asking. That is exactly what everyone is asking. Our government just seemed to make very strange restrictions on the fly, you know. In, in their defense, I think um, this is a novel challenge and mm. everyone's just trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of, for instance, San Francisco is considered ground zero for regulation in a lot of ways because it's a very left leaning town that has very, that thinks about these things a lot. By the way, San Francisco also had the country's first entertainment commission, which is why we have such amazing clubs and more of them than we ever had. So we mm -hmm. do a lot of things right too, but our health department, I think, was really out of its depth in trying to regulate clubs and concerts. And for instance, there's a venue called the Midway. Um, it's a big indoor venue that also has an outdoor patio and some big sort of open streets next to it with not a lot of neighbors. And the guys who run the Midway are, I think the nicest way to say it is that they are intensely creative and willing to take whatever risks they can to stay in business and to get things happening. And so they started doing outdoor concerts and they gridded out their street with paint where the pods would be and where the tables would be and made people separate themselves. And they did everything right based on CDC recommendations. And then the health department would come down with like, here are 15 other things you need to do differently. Oh, man. And then they do all that. And the health department would come down and say, and, and what it came down to was that the health department really didn't know what it was talking about because nobody really understood what the virus was. Early on, nobody understood. It's essentially an indoor talking virus, right? We thought it was on surfaces, so we're lysoling everything, and 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 then you have this whole aspect of the industry they call it hygiene theater, where we're doing things that we know make no difference whatsoever, but we want to pe make people feel safer by doing. Yeah. So, 
all of these aspects lead to a challenging um, future, even for, let's say Ireland wants to open back up, you've got a, the, 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 the powers that be over there need to look at what worked, what didn't, right, in other countries. And also there's what the regulations are, right? So for instance, in San Francisco now, um, the regulation is you must have a vaccine card uh, check that matched your ID before you get in the door. You're supposed to wear a mask inside unless you're actively eating or drinking. Hmm. The reality is people are faking the vax cards. They're getting fake ones because they're, they're very easy to fake. It's not like it has a barcode on it or something. Yeah. And then they're getting inside and taking the masks right off and dropping the floor and dancing or whatnot because they feel like they're in a safe environment with vaccines. So there's the intention, there's the law, and then there's the reality. And the reality is that um, it's very difficult to enforce these things. And it's going to get more and more and more difficult over time as people get lazier and lazier about, um, about self-regulation. Yeah. That, that being said, um, people want to party. Music has to happen. Live events have to happen. Um, public gatherings have to happen. So people are going to do it, even if they feel like they're going to get, they have a potential of getting sick. And those people who are most at risk probably should take appropriate precautions. I'm not advocating that people throw caution to the wind. I'm just telling you what I'm seeing. And that's even in San Francisco, which is one of the more like mask and vax conscious places in the world. Mm. I, I just drove across the entire United States all summer with my family we were in 48 states in the last year. San Francisco was the only place I saw that was really like doing it, quote unquote, right. Most really? of the rest of the country, there's no masks anywhere. People are just doing what they're doing. Another, another big difference between the U.S. and like a place like Ireland. In Ireland, the government, it's, it's more homogenous what the government powers are over there. Whereas mm. in the United States, so much of this is regulated state by state. And yeah. even city by city and county by county. So it, it, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. The upshot, though, is that we are seeing a lot of concerts happening. And, um, and there, here's another side challenge people hadn't anticipated around COVID, right? I mentioned all those people who um, have gone on to other professions. And a lot of people who don't want to go back to work um, doing things that they consider, you know, not fun, right, for low wage, and mm. now that especially that it's dangerous. So a lot of the event industry professionals I speak with are having a lot of trouble getting labor. And this also, um, where it's, where it's really um, a, a sort of present danger to our industry is when it applies to security companies. Um, we had a festival we were going to be working with on the East Coast that canceled the festival because in a previous year, the company they dealt with for security, I'm talking not even high-end security, guys who stand a gate, they, they had 67 guys from them last year. This year, they, they could only get 15, right? Oh, who wants to stand at a gate for 15 an hour um, and potentially get sick? Well, they had yeah. to cancel the festival. So, you know, fast forward to what, what just happened at Astroworld, Right. Now, there's still enormous um, amount of investigations going to come out. But my guess is, from having done this a long time, that they couldn't get enough bodies. They could not yeah. get enough security 
to properly control that site. And from the anecdotal evidence is coming out where they're saying people were jumping fences and everybody was crushing into VIP and all this stuff. Well, that sounds like, you know, it's not just the, the actual security guards, but it, maybe they didn't have like the, the, the companies that used to provide them with blow through barricades. Maybe they're not in business anymore. Maybe the parking attendants, you know what I'm saying? The COVID yeah. creating challenges, not even related to the disease itself for our industry that are impacting how we do things. And the primary, the primary challenge right now is you can't get enough good people. Mm. Yeah, what we're seeing over here actually is that, like you said, so many people have actually left the industry. But on a smaller scale, it's given newer, younger people a chance to get into the industry. There's people straight out of college, you know, sound techs, lighting techs that are actually getting a chance to get into the industry now, which is on the flip side, something great that is coming from the pandemic, you know? Yeah, I am. I'm all for it. And I and I and I love to see creating, I love to see us creating new opportunities. I would recommend that we as a culture address though, how to make the creative and artistic um, spaces a place where people can make a viable living. It seems like in our cultures and Western culture, outside of a great deal of government support in Europe, it's really hard to make a living in a band or in this industry, in the concert or events industry. It's really hard to get the things, you know, for instance, I, I went to school with a bunch of people who went to business school and they all got jobs and did that stuff. And then, you know, after a few years, they were able to buy a house and have kids and all the normal things that people would might aspire to. It's really hard if you're a musician. It's really hard if you're in this industry. There's never enough security. There's never enough like actual money, except for some very, very lucky people who get in the right touring group or the right, you know, the right corporate um, environment. And so if we are going to rethink this thing and bring people back in, we got to find a way to pay people better and create more security. And, and listen, let's get out of this idea that bands should have to tour for all their money. Also. Um, that's one nice uh, side aspect of the, of the pandemic was it taught people how to do streaming and yeah. streaming concerts and it's the first time we've had a way for an artist to a new way for artists to get paid that in NFTs are like the first way for artists to, to get paid since 1997, when the decline of CDs began and all the recording industry money went out of, uh, out of, out of the music business. Right. Mm -hmm. How do we get artists paid? That's one of the biggest challenges we have right now. Yeah. It's uh, it's not the way the music industry is flipped like that. It's not great. It doesn't even it doesn't make being in the band appealing almost if the only way you make money is from touring you know especially it's for <laughs> sorry it's life-threateningly dangerous to be in a van for 12 hours 8 12 hours a day driving you know playing a gig waking up not getting enough sleep i've lost i lost a friend three years ago in a car accident who was a touring dj mm -hmm. i know we've all heard of bands bus tour buses vans and also all the money that's being paid on, out of that ticket price, right? The, whatever doesn't go to the promoter in the club. Um, so much as that is just going to gas and flights and hotels and screw those guys. Like I wanted to go in the artist's pocket. That's where mm. it belongs. So exactly. let, let's find, and that's when people were selling records and CDs, 
more that you could produce your own art, you could sell your art and people would buy it and you would get a portion of that money even if you never left your house. Touring was part of it. We shouldn't force people to have to tour. Um, this is something I hope we solve. It's weird though when you look at it, you know, if you just strip it back, artists nowadays are support are expected to give their creative product away for free, you know? up onto a streaming site and they get barely anything for it. There's no other industry that, you know, that you go into work in where you're like, okay, you have to say work 12 hour days and you get a few pennies for it, you know? So something really does need to be done where the artists are getting what they deserve. It's, it's asinine and criminal and infuriating when you, when you start thinking about it. It's not just musicians photographers, digital photography, uh, you know, everybody's just grabbing clip shots and, may, and making art out of it. And we as a, as a society have to figure out how, we, how much we value art in general and how to make, put a value on that art. Um, the idea of Napster and file sharing and, and, and even look, it, it's, we, we applaud all these disruptive creative industries, right? We were, mm. we were thrilled that iTunes brought us uh, the power to download a track direct to my computer in my home without having to go to a record store. But don't forget, iTunes said, we're going to pay artists 30 cents on the dollar for what they were getting previously. Yeah. And then when, when Pandora and Spotify came along, you're talking pennies on the dollar. Now they would argue, and they do argue that they're a radio station. They're not a distribution service where we're the biggest radio station in every market and mm. radio stations don't pay you and you should pay us for the exposure or something. The reality is um, that I don't, they may be right technically, but they still need to be paying these artists more and not just the top 100. They need to figure out a way to survive as companies uh, while supporting their musicians more. And I guarantee you, they can point to a hundred programs they have and efforts they have and give back this and that. But the reality is um, it's really hard to make a living selling your own art these days. Um, yeah. NFTs are promising. Hmm. There, yeah. There's something there. I don't know what, what it, what's going to become of it, but the fact that the artists own the rights to their art, even after it changes hands and they get a piece of every transaction down the road, that's fantastic. And yeah. that, that, that may be through the blockchain might be the, the road to a solution. I'd say that's the way it's going to go in the future anyway. But um, I just thought of an interesting, an interesting question. Since you have experience behind the scenes and at the front being a DJ on stage, which one would you recommend or which one would you prefer? Well, working in the, the being a you know, producer, promoter or being a musician, I'd say all of the above. And I'd add to that being a person in the audience as well. Um, there's still nothing more wonderful than me than to be at even like a really big concert with my wife or something. I, I don't, I don't, you know, we're still a little, um, a little sketched out by crowded clubs, but mm -hmm. you know, I just think back to some of the great concerts I've been at, they've been life-changing, you know, it's, it, and, and that plays into that perspective of having those esoteric life-changing experiences at concerts, at clubs infuses me as a DJ and as a producer 
with the goal of wanting to give those experiences to people. We've, we talk about this at Hush Concerts, what our job is, right? What are we here to do? Well, first of all, it's to be of service to our clients and customers, but also to help people achieve those cathartic moments when music really changes something and brings up a memory of nostalgic idea, helps them connect with another human being. Life's too damn short. And who's to say the accumulation of wealth or income or having a better job than someone should be the goal? Maybe life is more of a Falstaffian experience where our job really is to spend late nights in bars with our buddies and drinking wine and raising glasses. And, you know, there's, there's two different points of view in this. And so we created this company and we do what we do to enable people to have more of those esoteric Falstaffian experiences, right? We're trying to help you get, yeah, we know you have to work when you're not working and you want to do something fun and interesting and creative and get together with people, we're going to give you a way to do that, that nobody can say no to. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose at the end of the road, when you've reached your final days, I personally prefer to look back and say, I had a long list of unreal experiences than I have a massive bank account, you know? Yeah. Yeah, That's what it's all about. I had a near death experience when I was uh, 21 and I, my whole perspective changed on things. It was actually at a concert that night when I had the epiphany um, about how to, yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a, um, I had a disease scare kind of thing where I thought I had something and it turned out that I didn't. And I went out that night and just had the most wonderful night and realized that like, if I was going to live a year or two years or whatever, I wanted to do that as much as possible. Yeah, and, uh, and that is infu- infused and informed everything that we've been able to create as a as a team, and also every everything every step I've tried to make since that point in my own life. Yeah, geez, it's uh, definitely put you on the right track. Anyway, yeah. live life to the fullest. Yeah, and you know it's you know it's really the, the the crazy cosmic thing. The band I saw that night was Rebirth Brass Band, and then <laughs> the next day when I found out I was okay, I was I was reborn. So, um, yeah. So you talk about these like cosmic coincidences. That was a big one. Yeah. Yeah. I like how we just, uh, kind of went full circle there back to the start. <laughs> yeah. So, um, before I get on to the last couple of questions, what sure. advice would you give to anyone looking into getting into events or promotions or working behind the scenes when it comes to events? I get this a lot. I get this question a lot, especially from people that want to be promoters and producers. And um, the first thing you have to understand about this industry, it's not like uh, being a lawyer, we go to law school, being a doctor, you go to medical school, you want to work at a bank, they put you behind a desk for three years. There's no barrier for entry. You want to do this, go do it. Getting paid to do it and getting paid to make a living is also really hard. And because there's no barrier for entry, you run into a lot of people who the word professional is in air quotes, right? There's there, it takes years and years to get good at what you do in these things. But that said, if somebody wanted to work in the concert industry, my recommendation would be to find a small or a mid-sized promoter or producer in their market. Don't go to the big guys because you could, you could get lost there and never learn a thing. Um, uh, I would find somebody small and independent and say, hey, what do you need? I'm here. I'm here to do whatever nobody else will do for you, even if you don't have to pay me. 
call it an internship, call it what you want, be a runner, just go be a fly on the wall for as long as it takes. And what's great about those small mid-sized companies, and this has been our experience as one of them, that you bring on people that show agency and initiative and creativity and talent. And pretty soon you're saying, hey, guess what? Um, on this show, I want you to run the box office. Uh, how do I do that? Okay, I'll show you a few things. And then after that, you have to figure it out for yourself. And, and that's one great thing about this industry is that there are, all, are a lot of places where you can give very young people a lot of freedom and, and agency in their own direction. Um, the other thing I'd recommend to them is to, there's a few books they can read, understand what the, what the music industry really is and what music is. I never did that. I never had that advantage. But like, for instance, there's a, a book um, uh, about Bill Graham, about the first real concert promoter that I recommend mm-hmm. everybody read. Um, there's a book called Mansion on the Hill about Neil Young and, and, uh, and David Geffen about the creation of what we think of as a music business. Um, David Burns' How Music Works is immensely rewarding book in that every chapter is a different way to look at music. There's a, there's one about how to build a concert tour. There's one about how to build a scene. There's one about cosmic and mathematical theories of music. Um, That's enormously rewarding. Like in anything else, read everything you can, study everything you can, and then find yourself a rabbi and you know, follow him around and him or her and do everything they need. Be someone really good's assistant and, and, uh, or runner or whatnot until you're their assistant and you will, you glean every last bit of knowledge you can from those people. Yeah. That's some invaluable advice there. So um, I know I'll be definitely checking out them books. I've, uh, I've already been looking up a bit about Geffen and, uh, Bill Graham already two fascinating characters there's a did you ever see that documentary on geffen that's on netflix actually i think making david geffen or something it's called no i have not now that i know it exists i'll have to go find it yeah it's fascinating it's very mansion fascinating on the hill, mansion on the hill specifically not just geffen but also um bruce springsteen's manager whose name escapes me is a major character in it neil young's a major character um bob dylan's manager this is in how they how they broke out of this idea of, you know, hey, you go record these 12 songs for your, how, how it turned into an artist has control of their own career and how we, we create this whole concert infra- infrastructure and, re- and this whole world got created was because of, I believe his name was Greenberg, Dylan's manager and, and, uh, and the guy with Springsteen and Geffen and a few other people, fascinating, fascinating read. The other thing, by the way, the other piece of advice I give someone also, especially they say, hey, I want to be a promoter. I would recommend that they not be a promoter and they be an assistant or work with a promotion company for a while. It's a real easy way to get screwed over and lose a lot of money really quickly. Yeah, I could imagine if you're not fully sure what you're doing, you'd, uh, it's like walking in blind, I'd imagine. It's immensely risky and also like, you're not really doing service to the artists that you're promoting if you don't know what you're doing, right? You're letting them down. And what's more precious than their precious time as artists and musicians, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And even at that, if if you were getting into it, you want to build a business that, as you said, services people and that takes care of the people that you're there to take care of uh, so that will come back, you know? 
And if right. you don't know what you're doing, that's not going to happen. Yeah, and, and you know, consider all these new aspects of safety we've been talking about. Um, again, it's not something you want to go into half-ass. Mm, exactly, exactly. We'll uh, we'll move on to the final few questions. Nobody okay. gets out without answering these questions, I'm afraid. Okay. So, uh, if you could see any artist from history, living or dead, for one night in concert only, who would it be? Oh, Zeppelin. Really, I like yeah. the quick the quick yeah. response. No, I, I I guess well, I mean, if we're talking about acts that don't exist anymore, it would be Zeppelin. And one that does exist, but will never play again together would be the, the Talking Heads. I, mm. I, I would give my, I would give a kidney to get those folks on stage again, but it'll never happen. No, unfortunately, unfortunately, two very good picks. Um, the next one: if you could be locked in a room with any artist from history, living or dead, for twenty-four hours, who would it be? Uh, Springsteen. Really? I think you could learn more about music and about life. Uh, just having read and seen some documentaries about him, how that guy thinks, not just about music, about what it means to be an artist um, and what it, me- what it takes to be sustainable, make build a sustainable career, not just for yourself, but for everybody around you, I think uh, to spend some time with him would be fascinating. He also seems like he's incredibly down to earth. He thinks yeah. about all different types of things. And uh, he is by all accounts, incredibly decent person. So I, I think I'd probably want to spend some time with him. Yeah, that's, that's an answer I've heard a few times. All right. I think it largely goes towards the image he has as such a nice down to earth guy. You know, he's just uh, seems like an everyday Joe Soap. That's a big part of it. But also, you know, he's he's really made some very interesting comments. And he's, you can tell how deeply he's thought about what it is to be an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned, you know, musical instinct, musical intelligence. That's a concept that I got from him. Um, you know, this idea when they, when they were starting out, they knew what they wanted to hear in the studio. They knew what they wanted it to sound like. That's musical instinct. I know what sounds good to me. Musical intelligence is how to get there, right? Learning how to make that sound that you want. That is, that is a lifelong pursuit, right? So um, those are the kind of things, you know, maybe, maybe David Byrne too. God, that'd be another, that'd be another one. Maybe Byrne. Talk about a guy who's, who's, you know, uh, fascinating about a wide variety of subjects. (laughs) More great picks there. It's uh, good answers, good answers. Definitely wants to think about. Um, the final one, if there was a song that could appear on the soundtrack to your life, what would it be? Wow. This one always stumps people. God, I once, you know, I, 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 uh, I was an Allman Brothers fanatic for many years. I had the good fortune of um, opening on some bills that they played on. And um, there's a, a track that Dwayne Allman produced or that he played on with Boz Skaggs called Loan Me a Dime. And I said that that was the song that should be played at my, at my funeral um, after I'm gone. I just thought it was the most beautiful rock song I'd ever heard. Um, but as far as the soundtrack to my life, wow, this is a tough one. Um, 
God, I don't know. I, you know, since I moved to Massachusetts, it's so gray and uh, and and dark here. I've been really vibing on Chris Cornell lately, right. and right. you know, so you know, shadow. Uh, what is it? Sh- uh, shadow on the sun and black hole sun, and mm-hmm. you know, just day after day like that. That's what that's what I've been feeling lately. But um, God, a soundtrack to my life would have to be a funk track. Like it's it's got to be. It's got to be something, probably something like, uh, you know, set two of Rebirth Brass Band at the Maple Leaf, I think mm-hmm. would be the soundtrack to my life because they're, they're, why, they're why I'm here, right? Rebirth, yeah. Rebirth was the cathartic musical experience for me. Something by the Neville Brothers, my first concert. I don't know. Yeah, I think you touched on it there. It has to be that one. You know, it's, it sets you on your life's, your life's road. It's a, a perfect one. And uh, I have to ask you, 2022, any plans for Hush concerts to grow or what? what's it looking like? So, so excited about 2022. We just got in a new, a new type of headphone that has, um, it, our, our conference headphones have very pristine audio. And one of the limitations of silent disco headphones throughout the last 10, 15 years is that the sound is good, but it's really compressed and you lose a lot of the dynamic range of the music you're listening to. We have new headphones that are 12 channels, eight colors, and have pristine sound on at all of them. And we're really excited to, to show them off and show the world um, uh, how good they are and take them to our festival clients this summer, um, take them out to Electric Forest, take them out to Bottle Rock, we're going to debut them on New Year's Eve in San Francisco so people can see them and hear them for the first time. So we're very excited about that. Um, and we're very excited to, uh, well, hey, God, here's something we're really proud of. Our whole team stayed together. We were able to keep the entire company uh, with us. Um, everybody that was working for us at the beginning of the pandemic is still working for us in some capacity. We haven't lost anyone and that. We're really proud to have this family still together. So if we can get everybody back to where, you know, they're earning a decent income and everybody's feeling fulfilled in their, um, in their, you know, they feel like they're learning and getting new stuff out of it. Um, I've been trying really hard of late to learn how to be a better um, facilitator of other people's dreams and careers within my company, trying to, pass on as much knowledge as I can and passion and whatnot so that these folks, so they can outlive Hush concerts or me or anybody else. That's, that's something I'm working, made a very important commitment to in the coming months and years, really like share as much as I can. Cause we might, you know, any of us could not be here next year. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you reminded me of saying I heard before, it's a, a great boss is always, looking to train in his replacement something like that yeah yeah and um you know for 20 years or so john and i were were partners so i didn't need to train my replacement he was my my partner Mm. Um, john's not with us anymore so now that's very much a um a a goal um but we're all this is such a such an esoteric business you know, I don't think anybody can be replaced in my company. We're all so unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of what's fun about it, too, in that 
This isn't like none of the every promotion company, every production company is different because what we're doing is is so much of it is subjective. So um, you couldn't you couldn't replace Alan Scott on another planet. You couldn't replace um, you know Noah Noah Dials at at Hotbox because so much of what another planet or what Hotbox is comes directly out of the soul of Alan Scott and Noah Dials and those guys. And so that's why so many of these promotion companies and producers and promoters, it really is their own taste. That's what comes up. And that's the best part of our industry. You know, without the indies, that man, that's the best part of our industry because it is fully, it's a fully realized, it's a realization of their own musical taste and dreams. That's a beautiful thing. Um, what I'm trying to do now is help my staff find what those ideas are for them and seeing how hush concerts can help bring those to light as much as possible yeah yeah geez you're uh you're really selling sounds like an absolutely amazing place to work <laughs> yeah i mean i guess you could say that we're all working in our homes now we have a, we have a great uh we have a great office and shop in san francisco where we deal with our headphones and stuff but pretty much everybody works remotely I like mm. to think that we're we're a good place to work. We have our own, you know, issues and drama like every other company, but I like to I like to think that we're working on um, you know, holistic ways to deal with them. Um yeah. and to to take care of each other. That's service doesn't just apply to our clients and customers. If the first word when you see one of your coworkers isn't, "Hey, what can I do for you? What can I do to make your life easier on this?" What's my place in this? Where, how do you envision me being a part of this? That's how we want to communicate with each other. That's how we want to work together. So much yeah. of the concert industry also, you know, even when I was touring, I would, I would work with like roadies and crew and managers and stuff where it's this very top-down, almost like quasi-militaristic thing. You know, roadies haze each other. And, you know, a lot of yeah. that, I just never really had time for that thing. Because I, I don't think that any of us are more important than the other. Anything we're doing is so important that we couldn't do it in a way that is um, fulfilling and uplifting, right? Yeah. All right, yeah. That's what we're going for. It doesn't always work. I can be an enormous dick sometimes, <laughs> when, especially when we're rushed and we're trying to get things done. But, you know, in our best selves, in our best days, what we're striving for is to help lift each other up. Yeah, yeah. It's a... Uh... I really admire your values. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I, I enormously enjoy your podcast, um, especially how you'd like to delve into the deeper issues around artists, their careers, but also like you try to pull their souls out of it and, and really get them to bear their souls, you know, understanding their music based on how they got there and what their experiences. It's been fascinating. I've learned so much about metal specifically um, from listening to you. And I'm, I have a, you know, a novice's adoration of metal and my four-year-old son is a metal addict. Um, his favorite band in the world is the Who, that, that Mongolian band who have gone to, have now gotten, fortunately gone to see a couple times. Um, you know, I had the fortune of opening for Metallica a few times and I knew nothing about metal when I did. So I'm trying to catch up now. I'm trying to learn. And your podcast has been a great way to, to get some of that, um, some of that knowledge. Thanks a million. That, that seriously means a lot. Thanks a million. 
I really, really genuinely appreciate it. And before I let you go, you have a song that's going to, to play us out. What What is it? Uh, it's called Funky Hits Wreck. Um, it's basically, uh, I made a, uh, it's a break, it's a mid-tempo breakbeat track um, that I made. Um, there's some samples in it you might recognize. Um, and then the, the, the lyric is from a guy named Lyrics Born, who's my favorite hip hop MC. He's a, he's a Bay Area Asian MC. He's been around Quantum Projects, Soul Sides Records, worked with, you know, folks like DJ Shadow, Blackalicious. But Lyrics Born is my all-time favorite MC, and so it's got one of his acapellas on it. And um, it's the only song I've ever done, produced and released a lot of music illegally, but it's the only song I've ever had with where everything was cleared and was put out commercially. And it also happens to be the best dance track I've ever made, so I want you guys to hear it. So yeah, without anything further, get down.
and bam. I used to do it, I was the dream of Hollis Central. I used to do it in my father's continental. And I don't believe that moment was monumental. That's how I was the singers, they got the dead. I'm old school, so friendly, so custom D. I'm old school, give me back your names and does it please. I'm old school, now you might say your name D. It's gonna be from the lights if it comes from me. It's gonna be top notch and it must be green. Or at the very least, it's gonna be a masterpiece. Because for me, that's what's on the cusp of me. I really hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps the show grow. You can find us on social media at Concerts That Made Us Podcast. And be sure to check out our website at www.concertsthatmadeus.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by signing up at patreon.com forward slash concerts that made us. We've got three tiers available. If that's something you're interested in, you'll get access to a private Discord, exclusive uncut video versions of the podcast, early access to ad-free versions of the episodes, and much, much more. So, until next time, keep rocking. Hey, hey, what are you guys still doing there? The show is over. It's over. You can go home. Go on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here. Bye.